Hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for tuning in to Doth Protest Too Much, a Protestant historical theology podcast. And I'm excited about today's episode. Uh, we have James uh, and Charlie both. They've each been on the show before. Charlie was in our episode uh, a couple episodes back. Um, I believe it was called A Man. What was it called, Charlie? Can you refresh me on the title of that? Um... It was a. It was was a it terrible. a man runs the universe or? No, it was a man like makes that. a promise and the man keeps oh, the promise. Oh yeah, uh, a man <laughs> makes you. a promise. A man keeps the promise. Thank um, you. James. Uh, he he remembered the episode. He wasn't even on it. Uh, and then James was here for our first. It's called the Theologian Symposium Number One. This episode is Theologian Symposium Symposium Number Two, where we are uh, the three of us are going through our top five favorite theologians. Well, the idea is by the end of the series, which it should be five episodes. So we won't reach the end for another few months, but every month we'll, we'll come on and discuss another one or perhaps another two of our favorite theologians. So far, uh, James is on the first one and James myself. And we discussed three theologians because we each shared one. We each talked about uh, Martin Luther and of course, uh, Charlie who's joining us today is Lutheran. So we'll see if Luther shows up in his list, but <laughs> so we'll wait and see. But um, and then we also discussed Augustine and Bo Bo Bogiertz, um, Bishop Bogiertz. Uh, James discussed Bo. I discussed Augustine. And so today we are the idea is to do four. Charlie's going to do two. I'm going to do one. James is going to do one. So. Um, yeah, so how are y'all doing today? I know we like caught up a bunch before I, I hit record for this episode. So, but thanks both y'all for being here. And yeah, it's good uh, to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you back. I, I love having, uh, I love the last two episodes with both of you on it. And I'm excited for our listeners. Uh, James and Charlie are going to be regular, uh, regular, I don't want to say guests. I want to say, I want to use the term co hosts because uh, there will be times where we will have, uh, uh, maybe an academic scholar like we've had on the on the past episodes and uh james and or charlie might be uh co-hosting with me um talking with uh some of these and, and i wanted to have more of a more just familiar personalities on the show and like stephen burnett who's been on past episodes he, he's 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 on the team too so kind of we're, we're kind of a uh what's what's a it's not a quintet what's four people quartet a quartet yeah we're like the beatles but not really, because I don't really I'm better. Yeah, we're better. Do y'all care for the Beatles? I'm not a. I don't actually like the Beatles. It's all a, right, Charlie. Kind of contention, contention between me and my wife. You, yeah. I mean, I, I don't. I don't mind the Beatles. I like some of their music. I think Lennon and McCartney. If you're talking like the mo modern, popular music, they are two fantastic songwriters, in my opinion. But it seems like the really hardcore Beatles fans, it's like they don't know any other music. So that's kind of why I, I guess I like the band. I don't like the fan base, but that's not what our episode's about. But, uh, you know, um, <laughs> so we're talking about four other people that are not John, Paul, George, and Ringo. And Charlie, why don't you start, you, why don't you give us our first guy? I mean, I, was, I, I think it is a guy. <laughs> well, so. it is a guy. <laughs> it um, is a guy. Okay. I could have, I could have gone with Luther again, but I, I'm going to try to not overlap. Um, I mean, so we can talk about, you know, more people. Um, well, I mean, I'm don't talk, feel you I'm can talk do about you. one of my um, one of my professors from um, 
my first year of seminary, uh, which was in 1995. Um, and uh, I had kind of a weird journey to ordination. I did one year of study and then got scared out of my mind of, of pastoral ministry. And then I ended up being a high school teacher. And uh, nine years after my first year of seminary, I had my second year of seminary. And then I went all the way through that time. Um, but uh, one, the, one of the first professors that I had uh, was Dr. James Bells. Um, and uh, this was at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. He's, he's been on the faculty there for um, a long time, since 1989. Can you spell the last name for... Yeah, it's V-O-E-L-Z. I, have, I I know I feel like I've read something from him before, and I can't tell you what it was now. It was several years ago, but I'm sorry, I did. That, that's fine. So he um, he's been in St. Louis, well, on the faculty there since '89. Before that, he was actually at the other Missouri Synod Seminary, and um, a few years ago, he actually retired. But he still he still teaches. I mean, he's the kind of guy who can't completely retire. But when he retired. He moved back to Fort Wayne, but he's still on the St. Louis faculty. Um, his areas of specialty are um, the Greek language, um, uh, New Testament theology, and, and hermeneutics. And uh, it's because of his work in hermeneutics in particular that um, he's become one of my favorite theologians. And I I find myself going back to his work over and over and over again. Um, he he published a hermeneutics textbook in 95. I was in the first class that actually used the published uh, text. Um, and uh, the name of his, his book is What Does This Mean? And what he tries to do is kind of take the classical Lutheran approach to interpreting the scriptures and then... Um, kind of uh, bring it up to date in a way which deals with a lot of modern hermeneutical theory. And so what he'll do is he'll say, well, here's what some of these linguists and some of these uh, philosophers have been talking about in hermeneutics for the past hundred years. And here's what we can um we can helpfully use from these guys and here's what we should reject. And uh, here's how it can actually buttress and support um, what we know the scriptures say about themselves and, you know, and how we can use this to our benefit in, um, in a sense, translating the scriptures uh, to an idiom that the modern world will understand without actually changing their meaning. Um, so I think his, his textbook is fantastic. Um, unfortunately, um, that is a minority opinion. Um, the weakness of the text is that it uses a lot of very technical language, which um, most people have a great deal of difficulty understanding. I had the advantage when I studied with Dr. Bell's of having a degree in rhetorical theory. And so I knew all the vocabulary, 
And so I could read the text and understand it because I had read some of the people that Dr. Bells had read. And I, at the very least, I, I knew the vocabulary. Um, but a lot of people have struggled with that. And I recently found out, I mean, literally a couple of weeks ago, I found out that Dr. Bells is working on a second hermeneutics textbook, which is specifically written for the laity. And I think that for a lot of people who have used his older book, um, they'll probably read this one that he's writing for the laity, and then all of a the sudden, they'll understand everything that he said before. You think um, it's because of the technical language has been a, a barrier for, for or an obstacle, I guess? I think, yeah. I really think it has. I mean, most of the objections I hear to Dr. Bells's work um, arise out of either uh, an inability to understand the technical language or a misread of his presuppositions. So, I mean, the Missouri Synod is theologically a very conservative tradition. We, um, I mean, we're accused of being repristinators and, you know, just wanting to, you know, live our entire lives in the 16th and 17th centuries. And, and that's not completely unfair. I mean, there is a bit of that. Um, but, and Dr. Vells is like that too, but he, he also is of the opinion that perhaps there might be something that has happened in the last 300 years that we might be able to learn one or two things from, which actually might support, um, you know, our heritage. And, uh, um, I think some people don't like the way that he has done this, or they don't understand the way that he has done this. Um, he also has ended up being a somewhat controversial figure for a couple other reasons. A big one being um, that he was commissioned to write uh, <clears throat> the Concordia commentary on the Gospel of Mark, and he is absolutely convinced that the longer ending of Mark is not original to the gospel and was not written by Mark. And so he firmly believes that when he finished writing his commentary on chapter 16, verse eight, that he was done with the commentary and he refused to write anything on nine to 20. And uh, this has made a lot of people very unhappy with him. Yeah. I think he's right. Um, well, I was going to say, I, I, I don't I don't take a strong position on who wrote nine to 20, what its um, canonical status is or any of that. Right, but I right. think Dr. Bells is absolutely right that the gospel ends at verse eight. <laughs> right. And it's interesting that, I mean, I know that would be controversial. I mean, it would be controversial, I guess, to a lay audience who's never heard that very common uh scholarly debate i guess but like you know with i wonder even within like missouri synod theological faculty and scholars that they they are they still put off by that because just because it seems like um i mean just because it seems like uh it doesn't have to like threaten a 
maximalist or inerrant view of scripture. I know the Missouri Synod holds officially that position, though there's the debates over what inerrancy even. Uh, well, I mean, I, I don't think that there's, I don't think there's a unanimous opinion on either side of this particular controversy. I mean, Missouri Synod theologians have been doing textual criticism for the entire existence of the Synod. It's not like we're afraid of textual criticism. The, the thing that makes this issue complicated for some is that in Luther's small catechism, he says, Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Mark, mm. um, believe in our, um, and then he quotes Mark 16, 16. Mm. Um, and so um, some people think that your confessional subscription mm. is in doubt if you doubt that verse 16 is part of the gospel of Mark, or if you doubt that Jesus said those words. Um, Dr. Vels's position is that um, the doctrine that is taught in Mark 16, 16 is taught everywhere in the New Testament, and that you lose nothing by saying that this is not authentic to the gospel of Mark or not knowing for sure uh, whether Jesus said it. Um, and uh, there are some in the Missouri Synod who say that we are absolutely bound to the text critical conclusion um, arrived at by Luther when he wrote the small catechism. And I think that's just silly. Um, I, I, don't, yeah. I, I don't think that that argument holds any water at all. And yeah. uh, Dr. Vells, um, I mean, Dr. Vells and I are on basically the same page on that. I don't know what he thinks about the canonicity of the longer ending. Uh, there are many in the Missouri Synod who would say, well, we don't think that Mark wrote it, but it's still canonical. Oh, really? um, okay. My, my position is, um, and I'm actually working on an academic paper on this, which is not going to make me any friends, um, in which <laughs> I'm arguing that um, we, should, we should view the canonicity of the longer ending of Mark in the same way that we view the other disputed books in the New Testament. Um, but that's not going to make me any friends at all. But, but I think it's true. Um, and um, we'll see. So well, you mean like the, the letters of Paul? <clears throat> hmm? You mean like Ephesians, Colossians, stuff like that? No, um, the, <clears throat> we, uh, um, we, don't, we don't have any doubts about any of the Pauline epistles. The, the disputed books are the ones that are, are listed by Eusebius in his Ecclesiastical History as um, the antilegomena, the, the books spoken against. Um, so these would be um, James, Hebrews, um, Second and Third John, Second Peter, Jude, and Revelation. And those were the books that Luther also, and he appealed to Eusebius and some yeah, Luther Luther uh, had doubts about some of those, not all of them. Um, the formal Lutheran understanding of antilegomena was um, was spelled out by Martin Chemnitz in his examination of the Council of Trent. Um, and historically, Lutherans have held that the canon is open, in that we um, we absolutely. Um, 
are in agreement on the 39 books of the Old Testament that are in the Masoretic text and uh, the 19 books of the New Testament that I didn't list. <laughs> I mean, we, we just have the seven or, or 20. I, I, I never can remember how many books are in the New Testament. 27. 27, because there are 39 in the Old Testament. So the 20 books in the New Testament about which Eusebius had no doubts, uh, we're absolutely unified on those, and that includes the 13 Pauline epistles. Um, but the, you know, the seven that were historically disputed, um, that the on on those, uh, we 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 don't hold anyone to them, and we we don't use them as the sole source for any doctrine. Right. If we if we may argue a doctrinal position from them, uh, then we always support it from one of the texts that is not disputed. Uh, those the New Testament ones are called the homologumina, um, which is uh, those um, that we said the same thing about, um, the antilegomena being those that were spoken against. Yeah. And that, that's Eusebius's terminology, and we, we've just adopted it. I found that interesting, um, Luther and the Lutheran uh, approach to those seven books. And this is a good plug-in for a previous episode. Uh, uh, the episode on, it was actually just a, an episode I did on, on this podcast for our listeners. Uh, it was it was the Apocalypse Soon, which was Martin Luther's um, comparing his two different interpretations of the book of Revelation, uh, which was actually, that episode was basically just based on a paper from a class Charlie and I had together at ILT, but where you were in the theology of Luther class with me, weren't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had it the year before you though. Oh, okay. Then we, well, yeah, we, I guess we weren't I'm trying to think who I was in that class with uh, apologies to who you are. I will put a show. I think note. I talked <laughs> you into taking the class. Yes, you talked me into taking that class over a seminar on Kant. Um, no offense to Dr. Dennis Bielfeld, but um, uh, after reading uh, a lot of Heidegger, I wanted to, I didn't know if I wanted to do continental philosophers. I wanted to take a break from continental philosophy. So, <laughs> but yes, um, awesome. And I'm curious, what, what were courses, what were the courses you had with Dr. Bells at, in your... I took, I had three classes with him. I had uh, Biblical Hermeneutics, uh, mm -hmm. New Testament Isagogics 1, which uh, covered the historical background of the Gospels, um, and uh, a course on the Gospel of Mark. Mm -hmm. and, it's not, and, and I know like the Concordia, from my, from my impression of, of the Concordia higher or the seminary system is that biblical studies is not so much i don't want to say divorced but it's not really separated that much from the theology in general like it's they they call it exegetical theology and it's common that you'll have instructors or professors of it who also write in the areas of theology they're i guess they're more well-rounded i would say um well I, what you just described would be a fair assessment of the way they approach it at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne. Mm. Um, at, uh, at St. Louis, where I had Dr. Bell's, um, it is a little bit more specialized. I mean, uh, in St. Louis, you're generally going to learn 
exegetical theology from professors that that are have have devoted their career to biblical theology um and you'll have systematics from systematicians and you'll have historical theology from historians um in uh in fort wayne um the there the lines are are blurred a little bit more for example i had um or I actually, I don't remember if I had the class, um, but I had I had one professor for a historical theology class, a exegetical theology class, and a um, systematic theology class. So I so three disciplines, but I mean, this guy is perfectly qualified in all three, but um, that kind of that kind of thing less common at the St. Louis Seminary, more common mm-hmm. at the Fort Wayne Seminary. <clears throat> Definitely less common in, in mainline seminaries. I'm starting to see kind of the crumbling. I, I was thinking about this the other day, and I felt like kind of in in most mainline seminaries in divinity school, I don't want to say mainline, I'll say mainstream, or, or what I'm seeing is a biblical studies trend, I'll just put it this way, where it's more in contact with theology whether historical interpretation as that plays out in what we'd call historical theology or as it's connected to systematic theology. Um, I feel like something happened in like 2015, like something like from post-World War II, maybe it has something to do with the, the accreditation system that arose and the more formalization of these different disciplines that you saw in the academy in general, right? I feel like kind of from the post-World War II up until just recently, it was very, biblical studies was in its own world. And I'm starting to see it, maybe because I listen to OnScript podcasts, which always connects the theology, the biblical studies with the theology all the time. And they have, they bring on guests who, um, who, who are well-versed in both. I don't know, but uh, that's what, it just seems to me, I could be totally wrong, but uh, that's what the past five years. I don't know, James or Charlie. I don't know if any of you've maybe since that. Are well, I've I've been to both a, a seminary that takes one approach and a seminary that takes the other. Right. Um, and so, I mean, my my perspective is that the the strict separation of exegetical theology as its own thing um, is arises out of you know, Schleiermacher's um, discussion of how theological education um, should work and that there are some, there are some traditions that have followed the Schleiermachian model very, very carefully. And, uh, and the, um, the seminary at Fort Wayne, which doesn't take that approach as strictly as, as, uh, as our other seminary, uh, I guess its focus is has always been from the very beginning um, slightly less academic and more professional. I mean, um, St. Louis kind of wants to produce theologians who are pastors, and Fort Wayne wants to produce pastors who are theologians. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think that that's the way it comes down in the difference between our two seminaries. Mm. And I, I find great value in both approaches. 
but they are but they are different. Well, James, you're a biblical studies. You follow biblical studies a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What are you so, noticing as far as the relationship between the disciplines? Do you, I don't know. Well, so at my seminary, an Episcopal seminary, the the disciplines are pretty balkanized. Um, you have systematics, you have mission, you have church history, you have biblical studies, and there is natural interplay, but but there's no real attempt to synthesize. Um, and maybe maybe someone who went to the same seminary I did would say that's unfair, but at least that's my perspective. Um, I took as many biblical studies classes as I could, and I did not have a really strong grasp of biblical theology until after I graduated. And that's I can the same here. And I'm not trying to denigrate where I mean, I went to a different seminary than you, but I just think it's kind of a general thing you find in mainline seminaries. And um, it was really doing my STM. Well, now it's the PhD at ILT where uh, my biblical theology is stronger because, and I'm not even doing biblical studies classes. And part of it too, is because I have to teach. uh, I have to, I like doing it. So I didn't try to say it like I have to, I teach uh, courses on new Testament to high schoolers now. And so, and old Testament, you know, I, I had to do some old Testament too. And so that just, you know, it's, it's in mainline, you know, and, I, and I'm, I'm as guilty as, as in some ways too, because in, in a lot of the mainline, uh, some, they're turning out uh, clergy who are just not as familiar with scripture as they really should be. Um, and, you know, I was, I needed to go back to seminary, so to speak, and, and in my own way, when it came to just Bible familiarity. Uh, when I had to teach it, um, mm-hmm. I didn't want to be up there being a hypocrite. So, uh, and I've loved the Bible a lot more because of that. I mean, I'm glad I went into Christian education, right? But it's, you know, I, I love the old Testament in a way I didn't in seminary and seminary. I got, I mean, I had solid new Testament classes from a biblical study standpoint in seminary with Mark Allen Powell, who's written, you know, textbooks they've used on it, but my Old Testament was not, it was not good. It was all, it all seemed kind of dated and it was all kind of retired and adjunct faculty who, who taught like very, uh, it, it was very historical, critical, uh, centered. And, and it just like, it was all about my, my reaction inside. I didn't react outwardly this way, but I was like, so what, you know, where, where's the, the meaning and the, the meaning behind the text and how is that, how does that fit into theology and the mission of the church and that? And so I, you know, when I had a little bit of a different flavor. Um, so, so at, at my seminary, they, uh, Virginia theological seminary, um, uh, and this is not slander. This is just fact. They only <laughs> require um, a survey test, a survey class of the old Testament and a survey class of the new Testament. And that's it. So I think it's like three or four and a half hours of each. Um, and that's, that's all you're required. And you're only required to do one biblical language. And I think it's only four and a half hours of that yeah. max. It might be three. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, so I burned all of my electives on, um, on scripture classes, um, all that I could. Um, and I took classes from um, John Yeh, who's a Presbyterian 
um, Yale uh, educated, brilliant guy. Um, and uh, he he's his his particular flair was for Birkungsgeschichte, um, the history of effects, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of uh, an, an up and coming discipline in biblical studies. Um, and I took uh, a bunch of courses with uh, with him and with Stephen Cook, who's an Old Testament professor and um, scholar of uh, prophecy and apocalypticism in the Old Testament. Um, but really, I had to search all of that out. Um, so, so Charlie, I'm like, I'm super jealous of your seminary experience, man. <laughs> when I was at St. Louis, um, if and this was a long time ago, so I'm working from memory. I'm pretty sure that the exegetical theology component. Uh, you were required to take hermeneutics, <clears throat> two isagogics courses in Old Testament, two in New Testament, um, um, a book from the Pentateuch, one of the major prophets, and then I think one other Old Testament elective. And then in New Testament, you had to take a gospel, either Galatians or Romans, and then something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so... Um, and, and then Fort Wayne, it was a little different. Um, by the end of my seminary education, if I remember correctly, <coughs> I had taken hermeneutics, the four isagogics courses, um, Genesis, uh, Jeremiah, um, Messianic prophecies was my Old Testament elective. Um, and then in New Testament, I took Mark. Romans and Revelation. Yeah, very nice. Um, there might have been one or and and at St. Louis, you're required to uh, demonstrate competence in both biblical languages before you're admitted. <laughs> and at Fort Wayne, you have to demonstrate competence in Greek, and you can take Hebrew as an Old Testament elective. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, we. I wouldn't make the cut. I'm just kidding. I, <laughs> I took. I wasn't required to take Greek or Hebrew, but I took both. Um, and glad I did, just because. No, nah, it's one of those things. Yeah, if you don't, re- I get the arguments like you know, what's one semester going to do, or what's one year going to do if you don't use it. You, I mean, I get that, but even to have the basic lexical, lexical bank in your head of key key vocab, key, uh, you know, terms that do have, you know, a range of meaning. And I, I've never preached on it. Sometimes I think that's cheesy when, when preachers constantly go to like the Greek or Hebrew at some point. Sometimes I'm like, I'm wondering if they're showing off, but, but I do get it. I mean, I get, I mean, I don't think, I think that it should be, I think it should be uh, required. Yeah. In our homiletics classes, we, uh, diagrammed sentences in greek yeah well <laughs> it's not about good. how you feel it's about sentence diagram. What, what does the grammatical structure say period why right. well, um, go ahead charlie well that's it that's all i had well i was just going to say just sort of contextually um the courses that i have used the most in my pastoral ministry have been all the biblical courses because I teach a weekly Bible study. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, I use them in preaching. I had to forget everything I learned in homiletics and, and I've supplemented that elsewhere 
but all of the biblical study stuff I've, I've been using in my preaching, um, on a, on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. Um, so, so I just, I saw the time, James, why don't we, uh, yeah, get you rolling a lot of time. You're theologian. Well, that's good. I feel I feel that was cathartic. I needed to say what I had to say about that's, uh, that's what uh, I want this podcast to be. Though. I mean, I, I mean, appropriate catharsis. We'll right, right. Cord off if we want to go any deeper. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Just just don't share it with anybody from my seminary. Um, that <laughs> right. ship may have already sailed. But anyways, so my uh, my theologian for tonight is Michael Horton. He is the J. Gresham Machen Professor of Theology and Apologetics at Westminster Seminary in California. So he is uh, the first Reformed representative uh, amongst our theological uh, elite that we're mentioning. He is the editor-in-chief of Modern Reformation Magazine and also hosts a nationally syndicated radio broadcast that is now becoming a podcast. Um, the White Horse Inn, which um, if you're familiar with the White Horse Inn, um, it is uh, historically the White Horse Inn in England um, was uh, the place where the Reformation came to the English speaking world. Um, and uh, the building, of course, is no longer there, but the, the tradition and perhaps mythos of it um, is still there. Um, and it's a, it's a very interesting radio show. I've listened to a number of episodes. He's had a lot of really interesting people on, um, some from the Concordia uh, Theological Seminary System, uh, but also some from like Reformed Theological Seminary and whatnot. So it's sort of broad spectrum uh, re- uh, Reformed school um, or re- Reformation school, rather. Um he was born in 1964, was raised an Arminian Baptist, but he became a Calvinist um, through the reading of Romans, and in particular Romans 9, uh, which is a, an interesting uh, experience there. Um, I haven't yet bought it, but I'd like to, to get a, um, a coffee mug that I found that says Arminian Tears on the side. Um, I think that would be, that, that's fun. I, I accidentally broke my uh, my other favorite mug, which was uh, John Calvin, uh, his face, and then it said, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols, which is my favorite quotation from John Calvin. Um, but uh, I digress. Michael Horton, uh, he did undergrad at Biola, which is, um, uh, I mean, I don't think, I don't think it's wrong to say that it's more of the fundamentalist ilk um, out in California. Um did an MA at Westminster Seminary and then a PhD at Oxford, but it was through Coventry University. And if memory serves in the UK, a lot of um, a lot of the colleges um, grant um, grant degrees that are accredited through a different university if it's in like theological faculty and whatnot. Um, so Coventry is where he did it, but it's he officially received his degree, I think, through Wycliffe Hall at Oxford. Um, he's ordained in the United Reformed Churches in North America, which is a conservative Reformed Calvinist denomination. But I, I think he's probably about the most Lutheran Calvinist I've ever read, which makes him a very appealing read. Um, 
being a Lutheran Calvinist, uh, although that may seem paradoxical for some, is basically um, where Anglicanism is. Dermot McCulloch, uh, if memory serves, says that Anglicanism is not a spectrum between Rome and Protestantism, but rather is a spectrum between Luther and Calvin. Um, and I, I think he's onto something there. Um, and I tend to be on the Luther side of the spectrum, but I think Calvin has quite a lot to offer. Calvin even, by the way, if, if y'all didn't know, um, referred to Luther as his father in the faith. So he had a lot of respect for and love for Martin Luther. And though they disagreed about some things, uh, I would say they disagreed about more than, than perhaps even some Missouri Synod folks, because I don't think Luther was keen on the third use of the law, but that's a little inside baseball. Um, but, uh, and maybe, maybe it'll just pick a fight with Charlie. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Um, <laughs> But uh, but the areas of interest for Michael Horton, Reformation theology and retrieval of Reformation theology. Um, he he's written a, a bunch of popular level books, some academic books to um, putting amazing back into grace is a book that came out in the mid to late 2000s um, about the doctrine of grace. He just wrote two massive volumes on justification He's also really keen in my favorite of his books that I've read, which is one of my recommendations for, for reading for that, um, was um, a book that he wrote called Christless Christianity, where he takes on semi-Pelagianism head on. Um, in case folks are not familiar with semi-Pelagianism, um, a lot of mainline and um, Roman Catholic and Orthodox pretty much a lot of everybody are semi-Pelagians because it's the idea that you contribute in some way, shape, or form to the work of salvation, whether it's um, a strict infused righteousness um, of, of Rome um, or entire sanctification like the Methodists or um, anything to that nature. You know, I'm, 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 far more in line with Jonathan Edwards there. Jonathan Edwards said, you contribute nothing to your own salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Um, that's, that's one of my favorite Edwards quotes, quotations. But, um, and he's also written on Christian living in general. Um, he, he wrote a book that was, I don't think it was necessarily intended to be quite a dig against um, uh, Saddleback Church out in California. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember it. I'm blanking on the name here. Um, purpose driven life. Uh, I'm, I'm having a brain fart folks. Uh, is it Rick Warren? Warren. Rick Warren. Warren. Yeah. Um, but, uh, Michael Horton wrote a book called the gospel driven life. Um, which again is going to, to rob you of any, uh, sort of idea that, that you're contributing to your salvation, but rather everything is a matter of living in gratitude, which of course, uh, you can live in gratitude once you've heard the good news of Jesus Christ, which is that you are saved from your sins, irrespective of your work, but rather by grace through faith. So um, key to what we all, uh, what we all have to talk about and, and preach about and, and, and be with our people and our congregations about. Um, mm -hmm. So recommended reading, I would say Christless Christianity is every pastor needs to read that book. Um it is so, so, so good. Um, the gospel driven life. And then I haven't yet read it, but I do want to read putting amazing back into grace. Um, mm -hmm. so 
When did I you- have had uh, Christless Christianity on my shelf for several years, but I haven't gotten to it yet. Um, but uh, I used to listen to White Horse Inn fairly re- regularly. Um, I uh, I occasionally will um, have a moment where um, one of my reformed friends will say something that makes me so angry that I will reject everything that is even remotely connected to, to uh, John Calvin for about five years. And I think what happened is I bought Christless Christianity and then that happened within the next couple of weeks and I forgot that I had it. I'm probably at a place where I could manage to read it now. And um, it is a very Lutheran take. I mean, it is not, um, it is not the, the sort of, Typical punchy. Um, well, I, I mean, Mike Horton is never gonna be the kind of Calvinist that 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 makes me wish that John Calvin had never been born. He's just not that kind of guy. Um, I, I I have a I have a. I mean, he he's probably one of my one of my favorite people in in the Calvinist tradition. Absolutely. Well, I was so what you're saying is he's not young, restless, and reformed, right? <laughs> and uh my my wife um was a student of rod rosenblatt so yeah i have to kind of like mike horton a little bit in order to you know keep peace in the family <laughs> who's yeah. that who's who did you mention Charlie? rod rosenblatt's one of the other uh original guests on the white horse Inn. okay um and he um he's a retired professor at Concordia University, Irvine. He was the president. Which is where my wife went to school. Wasn't so, he the president of Concordia University, Irvine? Hmm? Wasn't he the president for a while there? Um, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. But, I mean, he was, he was the theology professor at Irvine that everybody who wanted to study theology, went to Irvine so that they could learn from. Mm -hmm. Um, He's still a very, very well-respected theologian within the Missouri Synod. Um, Though um, probably not as well-known anymore as he was, say, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. But he's a good guy. I I was about to say... uh... I've only, I hate to say, but I've only listened to, I think I listened to maybe two episodes on White Horse Sin, but um, I had some episodes checked or saved to listen to later and never got to it. But, um, but that's, I guess, so I guess they do have kind of a, a reformed and a Lutheran rep on the show to talk mm-hmm. reformation. So, okay. As I remember, um, <laughs> you've got Mike Horton, who's a Presbyterian and he's the, I mean, he owns it. I mean, it's his thing. Um, and then you got Rosenblatt, who's LCMS. And then um, one of the other guys I know is a Reformed Baptist. And I can't remember who the fourth guy, and, and, and this is back 10 years ago when I was listening to it regularly. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what the tradition of the fourth guy was. Um, but they were... Um, they were all in some way children of the magisterial reformation. Yeah. I was about to right. say the episode I listened to, they were, <laughs> um, 
I guess, lamenting the fact that a lot of people in, in various forms of popular evangelicalism, especially in the U.S., a lot of people leave that those church that those church environments because they're there's an aspect of it they think is shallow. They're and, and they're looking for something more, you know, rooted and rooted in tradition and uh, informed, I guess, uh, exegesis and and having more theology and 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 so they go to Rome. They're lamenting that that they don't know the magisterial Reformation tradition, which actually offers, you know, what perhaps a lot of popular evangelicalism is lacking. And I remember it was a really good episode. I mean, it was, um, that was one of the episodes I've listened to and, and uh, yeah. And that's a, that's a very real phenomenon where it's been, you know. Well, and, and, and Mike Horton would, I think perhaps say that a lot of folks flee evangelicalism for Rome because there's a lot of similarities today in American evangelicalism, um, especially because American evangelicalism is really the, really the inheritor of Charles Grandison Finney Mm -hmm. rather than, you know, the magisterial reformers like Luther and Calvin and, and to a certain extent Zwingli. I mean, I guess we could probably accept him as a reformer, maybe not magisterial, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the, the Lutheran position historically, at least in the Missouri Synod for the past 150 years. And I think you can find this in the latter documents of the of the Lutheran confessions, even going back to the 16th century. Our position has always been that the um the reformed and Arminian tradition is simply Roman Catholicism light. And so when we see people from those traditions cross the Tiber, we just kind of yawn and <clears throat> Take a, another drink of our beer. Well, what's the what makes them Roman Catholic light? I guess is the uh... um be, because um, <laughs> um I mean we would say that uh, that they they all have tendencies toward um the semi Pelagianism that Horton has been so uh, critical of um and uh, I mean within the the straight up Calvinist tradition uh, I'd point to the idea that. Um, you, the idea of evidences of election, that, mm-hmm. um, you look to your own works in order to determine whether or not your faith is genuine, um, which is a very strong tradition among certain Calvinists. I know that it's not universal. I mean, for example, I don't think Horton is much in that way of thinking. That came um, really through Puritanism. Um, that was, well, that was. Uh, it, it's I've, I've read it. I mean, it's in the institutes. Uh, I mean, it, it is straight up Calvin. It's just not it's not one of the elements of Calvin that is uh, uniformly emphasized in the Calvinist tradition. But it's one of the things that that Lutherans would point to as as something where um, they have more in common with Rome than they do with us. Is it like a a verifi- a subjective verification that yes. you have faith? Yeah. I've heard that it's intranos also. instead of extranos. Mm-hmm. In fact, I I heard it recently in my Pannenberg Retz, one of his critiques of uh, Calvin. But I thought 
it's a worthy critique, but the way he did it was kind of sloppy. And um, I'll get into that another time. That's going to be a whole other conversation. <laughs> I, 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 I bet. I mean, um, I, I, the, the one thing I like about Horton to get back to the topic, one thing I like about Horton is that he seems to be fairly adept at avoiding some of these traps. Um, and, uh, and I, I hate how, uh, how arrogant this is going to come off me saying it, but this is me. So I'll just say it anyway. People might as well know what they're in for with me. Um, <laughs> it, it, it makes him a, a, a far less uh, useless Calvinist than most. <laughs> <laughs> well, people have already noticed our, our more, we're a Protestant show, but they know that we're very biased toward Luther. And uh, the only name, the only name we're not allowed to, the only person we're not allowed to do cover on is Zwingli. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess I'll go with mine. Um, no, thanks, uh, James, for, I, I know uh, he, ha- so he's at Westminster seminary westminster seminary in california yep yeah that that there's some solid faculty there on all the divisions of the uh what was his name david van drunen who um i thought about putting on my list but he's not he's i guess he's a runner-up in a way uh great two kingdoms theologian who's written a lot on the history of that doctrine more so in the reform as it as it developed in the reform tradition but right he's a solid reformation guy and this is this is a good school uh in general, solid fact. Cool. So my yeah, there's theory, a huge difference between <clears throat> those two seminaries, the West and the East. I recently heard an interview with a guy from Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, and I could barely listen to the whole thing. The guy mm-hmm. was so well, not like Mike Horton. <laughs> not like Mike Horton. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so you both talked about living people my guy has been dead for 1700 years about no 1700 years uh, <laughs> athanasius is mine it's not a surprise to you because i mentioned on our facebook chat that i was going to do athanasius but um i just realized he is so he's like the father of uh, niceno christianity in so many ways that i and i feel uh well I we've Athanasius has appeared on this podcast before in our natural theology episode. He's one of the first, um, he did an interesting, uh, he had an interesting understanding of how the image of God becomes, becomes tarnished after the fall, but is restored in Christ's work, uh, on the cross. Well, in Christ's over in his life, death and resurrection. And, uh, I'm teaching, I'm actually teaching him to the ninth graders right now. And I'm teaching them about um, kind of the simultaneous in that same theme of Christ restoring humanity, Athanasius, uh, for our listeners, early church father. I mean, um, so therefore, uh, like a lot of patristics, like, like St. Augustine, um, you know, Catholics and Protestants alike can appreciate him. Um, but along the lines of like a lot of Athanasius's theology being, um, this theme of Christ restoring humanity, uh, I'm really fascinated by the, 
kind of simultaneous uh, condescension of Christ with his exaltation. Um, it's not like he invented this out of thin air. Uh, it's just, it's definitely biblical, right? I mean, there's plenty of the, the proof texts are there. The passages in the new Testament are there, which speak of Jesus Christ being God made flesh um, while sinking to the, to the depths of humanity by becoming fully human and therefore taking on the worst of human sufferings through that he is exalted in a place so high that uh, does not, that totally complements the dignity of him as God. That whole uh, theological schema, I think is very powerful. It speaks to me. I was reading, I was recently reading um, <clears throat> something on Mockingbird. I think I shared it on Facebook and I think y'all probably, because we're Facebook friends, but if someone did a piece and Mockingbird, I can put a link to the show notes about the theology of the cross, which is, of course, a Luther, uh, one of Luther's th key theological concepts that arose early on in his disputes uh, in the Heidelberg Disputation. The idea of God, um, that, the, that the cross of Christ is not just some th one, one of several things God has to do to make things wonderful. It is that, but it's actually how it is actually who God is like in his, in his essence, I guess you could say God is the, the suffering man on the cross. Um, while that's a Luther, uh, an idea of Luther, I feel like so much of that as well as just so many ideas uh, tied around atonement uh, and God, uh, God's restorative work from so many theologians over the course of church history, so many of them, borrow or show the influence of Athanasius. And so I think his influence is just so great that I have to put him in my top five. Um, so last time we talked about St. Augustine, so I, I have a, a couple yeah older patristic guys, but I think Athanasius is, I mean, his stories, um, his story is really interesting. Um, he was exiled, uh, you know, numerous times, um, including when he was he was dismissed from his role as bishop for his support of the Nicene Creed. Um, and because uh, Arians and other non-Nicene people were still in the church, a lot of them had powerful positions. And so um, by so he made he made a lot of enemies. Uh, he was exiled several times. Um, but he the, his. I guess uh, contribution to Christology and really to Trinitarian theology uh, is just so. On one level, it's profound to read. Like I don't really, like I'm, I don't feel like I'm just reading systematic theolo theology textbook. I feel like it's 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 uh, touching me in my on my soul. <laughs> like when I read, like it's actually like, yeah, uh, you know, spiritually enriching to read him. So, yeah, he's on my list. Uh, I don't know what y'all's uh, thoughts, experience with Athanasius is. I mean, we all come across them in some shape or form, but you know, I read I read Athanasius for the first time when I was a junior or senior in college. I read on the Incarnation, and uh, I was blown away by it. Um, and um, and the reason is that um, I I just 
I, I guess at that point in my life, I would have never guessed that you could have um, come across something that, that, that was that deeply theological so, so long ago, mm-hmm. which was just stupid arrogance on my part. I mean, I've read, you know, thousands of pages of patristic theology since then, mm-hmm. and I know exactly how wrong I was. Um, That's the same effect it had on me, uh, him and Augustine. But I mean, Augustine, you really got to suffers. I mean, he's, he's, he's a lot. Um, but that only goes to say, I mean, the, these people were not in our modern, I, I felt like I, I was, a, I was guilty of modern arrogance because so many modern theologians are so astute. And so you feel like people 1700 years ago cannot tackle the things that we worry about and that concern us today, but they very much did. And in many ways, I don't see what, what, why anything needed to be added. Athanasius was also also one of the guys who originated this doctrine that I, that you and I talked about a few weeks ago, the the Gainus Myostaticum. Right. It was Athanasius who first noted that when, um, when Jesus spit into the dirt and made the mud Mm -hmm. and then put it on the guy, guy's eyes and in his ears, um, he's the one who said the very, divine spittle carried divine power um and uh i i think that athanasius was the first person to put it in that way and um and and so i i mean that was that was one of the things that i noticed when i read him and i thought okay this is this is good important stuff and everybody should read it (laughs) And that episode title, A Man Made the Promise, A Man Keeps the Promise, that was a paraphrase. As we found out, as we were like chatting afterward, picking the title, that's a paraphrase of Athanasius, from Athanasius. It's not exactly what he said, but that was a Yeah, I, I don't remember the, the Athanasius connection. Yeah, it was... Um, Martin Chemnitz said that. Um, it, it, was an Athan- yeah. it was from Athanasius against the Arians, but quoted by Chemnitz, I believe. But I okay, could, could be. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Well, no, it could <laughs> be. I it wouldn't surprise me at all. Athanasius yeah. is exactly that kind of awesome. Yeah, and so, I could so see one other reformer. Yeah, sorry, James. Go ahead. I'll, I'll throw my my hat in. So I, I really like Athanasius. I had to read uh, on the incarnation in seminary, um, and uh, I guess one thing that has always concerned me because language matters is um, when Athanasius says um, God became man so that man might become God. And that is one of those things that I, I know where he's going, mm-hmm. but I know where it's led others. And I don't mm-hmm. agree with where those others have arrived. Mm-hmm. I, I pulled, I mentioned that quote to the high schoolers and, but with the caveat of, what that can mean and what it likely he did not mean, you know? Um, right. I mean, one of his, his whole, his idea of the purpose of God becoming flesh was, uh, uh, I think it was John Bear in his nice book on Nicene creedal on the, uh, the road to Nicaea. Nicaea. I don't remember the title of it. I'll put a show note in there. Uh, he talks a lot about it, the Athanasius in there, but the way he puts it, Athanasius basically had three purposes for um, 
our God had three purposes by becoming flesh. The beauty of it is that he didn't have to become, he didn't have to become flesh. He didn't do it for himself. He did it for right. our sake. But the three, the threefold purpose is restoration, like we mentioned, redemption, and then deification. And that third one is yes, where we can get in some some dicey territory because what exactly is that? Does it mean that we're going to progressively become better and better good Christian moral people throughout our faith life? I mean, that idea is dangerous and deadly. Well, and, and that's that's what bothers me, right? So yeah. just a brief digression or, or going down the rabbit hole here. So that's what bothers me. I've been um, I've been captivated by what Dr. Ashley Knoll said in that class that I took with him back mm-hmm. in January, where he said, and if memory serves, maybe it's come up on the podcast before, but he said that the older I get, the more I realize I am unlike Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's not the other way around. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's the older I get, the more I realize how much I need Jesus because of how unlike him I am. So I can't call it. I, I used to be really into Eastern Orthodoxy, really into, you know, the, the ancient church or at least the Eastern Orthodox perspective of the ancient church. Right. And I can't call that theosis. I can't call that divinization or deification like perhaps East, the East and Rome do, but it's sanctification, right? It's, Jesus is setting you apart as his own, or he is making you his own, which is the process becoming holy. But it's something that doesn't, it's not like you are made better daily so that tomorrow I'll be better than I am today, Mm -hmm. but rather that in the new creation, I will be complete and whole as God intended at the very beginning. I've kind of given up on understanding what Athanasius actually meant in that (laughs) phrase. I've, 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 parsed through the Greek and worked through that. And I'm not convinced that uh, the second half of that phrase actually says that we might become God. Um, I I think it might be better that we become divine and that maybe Athanasius is referencing what Peter says about becoming partakers of the divine nature. Um, I'm I'm not even sure enough to say that. Um, but I do know, and we should probably do an episode on ether, Eastern Orthodoxy, tell our more <laughs> stories sometime, uh, because I, oh, he's I got have some had, personal, I have, had, have had extensive, um, uh, um, warfare with the East. Um, I'll just put it that way. Um, and I mean, the East will go all kinds of weird directions, but they're not even unified on it. I, I think that the best we can say, I think the most charitable thing we could say about what Athanasius was talking about is that um, by faith, we become, um, at least in the new creation, um, sinless as Jesus is sinless. And so uh, since we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and kind of this uh, perichoretic relationship with God that the Trinity has with itself. Um, and, and I'm talking, at this moment, I'm talking only in the new creation. Since that is the promise, since that's the place to which we are headed, 
I mean, you can say that one of the purposes of the incarnation is so that um, by what Jesus did for us on the cross, all of that is in our future. Right. But um, Athanasius uses such shorthand um, that that sentence has been abused for, you know, over 1500 years now. And that has, that has, and and that's why your concern, James is entirely appropriate. But I, I'm to the point now where I just, I'm not sure that we can say with any specificity what Athanasius meant by that, because there's, it is such a condensed, you know, way of speaking. Mm -hmm. Well, and so, so, so like, part of the reason why this concerns me so much is because uh, of, of the people in the pews, right? This has deeply mm-hmm. pastoral implications. So they see on a daily basis that they're not looking more like God and therefore they start to lose hope. Mm-hmm. Right. And so like, I've had to, I've had to deal with this kind of stuff and thank God for the reformers because a completely different picture is given. Mm-hmm. Now, if you could go back and talk to Athanasius and just say, Hey, could you add hosts in there? Like, <laughs> so that we're, we become like God in the sense that God is sinless. We become like God in the sense that we have, we are made whole and perfect. Sure. But, but that the answer is no, thing. because of the way that he, he made up completely new verbs in that sentence. Right. There's no place to put the, to, to put the adverb. <laughs> right. <Exactly. laughs> Charlie, do you want to go ahead with your fourth? Sure. Um, <laughs> or your fourth. Yeah, my, my, fourth, my, your... my second one is Norman Nagel. Um, and he is dead, but he's only been dead for a couple of years. Um, he was also a professor at uh, Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Um, and uh, I, I think that it is fair to say that um, in my circles, he was the most influential theologian of the 20th century. Wow. Um, he, um, he was actually born in China. Um, his parents were Australian and were missionaries in China. And um, he, um, so he was raised, um, he was raised in um Mostly in Australia, he actually didn't. Um, he didn't ever see snow until I think his vicarage year in the United States. He went to Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. He um, graduated with his uh, Bachelor of Divinity degree, I believe, in 1952. And uh, so, in 1952, he was like. I think he was 27 or 28 years old. And I want to read you this. Um, this is just one very short paragraph of what he wrote in his Bachelor of Divinity thesis. Um, and, and, and think about the fact that he wrote this in 1952. Mm-hmm. And um, he um, continued to teach for about 60 years after this. But this is how this is how well his theology was developed practically before the beginning of his career. <laughs> um, 
He said, scripture confronts us with Mary's son. By Mary's son, we are confronted by God. Remove one of these and we are lost, for then God is lost to us. God reveals himself and deals with men only through the concrete realities of his son's humanity and the things designated by him. In these palpable and ordinary things, the fullness of Godhead is come to men. He wrote that in his uh, Bachelor of Divinity thesis, which was about uh, the relationship of the Incarnation to the Lord's Supper. Um, wrote that in 1952. So then um, he continued his education. He um, initially wanted to study with Werner Ehlert in Germany, mm-hmm. um, but uh, he was then asked to be rector of Westfield House, which is a Lutheran Seminary in Cambridge. And uh, because he was invited to be rector of Westfield House, they had a requirement at Cambridge at the time that in order to be rector at any school of Cambridge University, you had to have your PhD from Oxbridge, so either Oxford or Cambridge. And so he instead ended up studying um, I actually don't remember if it was at Oxford or Cambridge. Um, under, I believe, a Methodist Luther scholar, which is kind of weird, but um, <laughs> he got his uh, PhD there um, in uh, at Cambridge in '62, um, and then uh, he he ran Westfield House until '68. Then he uh, was the dean of chapel and a professor of theology at Valparaiso University from 1968 to 1983. And then he went to Concordia Seminary and he taught there until about, must've been 2006 or seven. And he retired and he had a stroke and almost immediately after, and he died about two years ago. The thing that was wonderful about Dr. Nagel is he was one of these um, completely eccentric professors that you could not get enough of. Um, and, and the reason was that you, you, you could tell that every sentence he spoke, he had spent several hours thinking about before he said it. Mm-hmm. Everything was precise. Everything was carried a huge, huge amount of weight. Um, I would sometimes go into his office and I would ask him a question and he would sit back staring up at the ceiling, but kind of with his eyes closed for 10 or 15 minutes. And then he would say two or three sentences or give me something to read. And those two or three sentences or the thing that he gave me to read would change everything that I thought about Christian theology. Hmm. <laughs> until the next week when he would give me the next three sentences. Um, he, uh, he taught in uh, systematic theology. He was a Luther scholar, probably the greatest Luther scholar of the 20th century, and I include Althaus and Ehlert in that. Um, and because Dr. Nagel was able to give you Luther in a way that was pretty unencumbered by Nagel. 
Um, but he also was able to identify um, patterns of thought in Luther, which if you came to understand these patterns of thought, then you would read Luther and it'd be like, oh, mm-hmm. well, of course, this is where he's going with this. Yeah. Because you could kind of see the streams. And sometimes the problem with reading Luther is that it feels like you're reading a lot of um, kind of flotsam in order to get to those wonderful nuggets that are great. And after you study with Nagel for a while, you would you would come to be able to kind of see where things are going mm-hmm. in that stuff that's in between those nuggets that anybody can recognize are great. You kind of see why Luther's going where he's going in order to get there, because Nagel was so good at helping you get into Luther's head. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, Dr. Nagel didn't care too much about Luther, even though he loved Luther. Um, what, what Nagel cared about all the time was Jesus and his gifts. It was always Jesus, and it was always Jesus's gifts to his church. So like in that quote I read, it talked about the, the things designated by him. And so what Nagel's talking about there is baptism, Lord's Supper, absolution, the preaching of the word. I mean, he would talk about how um, how the uh, the job of a pastor is to deliver Jesus from between your teeth into the parishioner's ear hole. <laughs> I mean, Do- Dr. Nagel liked to be that concrete about it, mm-hmm. that if you were speaking the word of God, Jesus was coming from between your teeth and into the parishioner's ear hole. Um, And if you were distributing the Lord's Supper, you were pouring Jesus into someone's mouth. Um, And uh, so um, there's a, nobody knows whether this story is real. I think it probably is. But the story goes that Dr. Nagel had finished teaching a class on Christology, and uh, people come in with their blue books ready for the final, and Dr. Nagel walks up to the chalkboard, and he writes Jesus, and then he turns to the class and says, have a go with that, and he walks out the door. (laughs) Um, Just give me everything that you can say about Jesus, and it had best be what the scriptures give about Jesus, because the other thing, and I I actually saw him do this once, and this was great. He goes in and he asks everybody to give him um, all of the attributes of God. And so people start listing them and he's writing them on the board until somebody says um, sinless. And he drops the chalk and it shatters on the, ground and he turns around and he says oh you want a sinless god do you and the students like uh yeah and then um dr nagel says a sinless god won't do it all i want my god to be full of sin i want my god when he is nailed to that cross to be carrying every single sin that ever will be committed that's the only God who will save me. And um, his point was... Second Corinthians 5, 21. <clears throat> yeah, his point was that you simply don't get to, you know, say, 
here's this list of attributes that God has to have in order to qualify as God. You can only have the God which the scriptures give you. Mm-hmm. And that's the one, and, and that's a good thing because that's the one you want to have anyway. Yeah. Um, so um, the, the thing that was wonderful about Dr. Nagel is that you would find these incredible ways to communicate these most basic uh, kind of primordial ideas, right? especially about, especially in the areas of Christology and sacramental theology. Um, he could distill everything down to its very essence and then, you know, give it to you in that way that um, you, 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 you literally felt like uh, he was changing your life with every third sentence. Uh, so that's what, I mean, and I, I, there's thousands of Missouri Synod pastors who could tell uh, the same sorts of stories about him. Well, I, uh, I remember you told me that story before about um, a God full of sin and um, gosh, I would love to like title, but we're already tight. It's a series. We're already titling at the (laughs) theologian symposium. Like what a perfect title to take something out of that. But that's a profound story. I mean, I remember you told me that and um, it goes back to the theology of the cross, right? Um, The God. By the way, if you, if you go to Mm csl.edu or uh, actually it's a, scholar.csl.edu mm-hmm. and you search for Norman Nagel they have a fair number of audio recordings of his sermons Concordia St. Louis is good with archiving yeah, um, yeah. and uh and to listen to Dr. Nagel preach for I mean usually his sermons are 7 or 8 minutes um to listen to him preach um I think really gives you a full sense of uh, the impact that he had on his students. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, gentlemen, um, it's been an awesome episode. And I can't wait to do number three, but we'll get in touch to do yeah. that, to schedule that. So God bless both of you. And um, I'll see and talk to you both of you to both of you soon and for our listeners they are in for a treat because this is a awesome episode great discussions and so god bless until i see you both back on again sounds good you too bro. Bro.